0: There's a mansion now empty, just waiting for me. We just sang that song and how, what a powerful message is within it. And may I say what a blessing it is that we've each been granted the opportunity to assemble today. As I look over the assembly this morning, I see, of course, many of our members at Pippin. Thankful are we for our health and the capability to be here But so many guests and visitors have come our way today. We're so thankful to have you, and we hope that all of us have a very thrilling worship in that it'll please the God of heaven. And we hope it's a very great benefit to all of us and encouragement as well. We would certainly invite one and all back to all of our schedule of services. Sunday morning at 9.30, our Bible study class. The regular worship hour at 10.30. Sunday evening at 5.30, we assemble again for worship. And may I say tonight, we'll turn our attention to a next installment of Questions and Answers. So you might keep that in mind and be back with us if at all you can. And then Wednesday evening, our usual Bible study hour at 7 p.m. The lesson this morning takes us to the text in Ephesians 4. And Brother Dennis read that just a moment ago, verses 4 through 6. If you would, please be turning back to that location, and we will devote the next few moments to at least some reflective thoughts about some of the features of that set of verses. I would say that I'd like to at least, after this introductory slide, point us to verses 1 through 3 that actually preceded. But as we at least reflect for a moment on the book of Ephesians... We, of course, have begun a study of Ephesians on the Wednesday evening Bible study hour, and we still are in chapter 1, but one of the things we so readily have found already is that the first three chapters will fall into a beautiful category of marvelous doctrinal truth. And in the last three chapters, at least more often than not, Paul makes use of that to extend practical instruction How do we use the doctrine we've just learned then to apply it to life so that we might live pleasingly to God? That's verses, or rather chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in so doing, to be a better father, better mother, better husband, better wife, a better child, all of that's going to come in due course. For this morning, that set of verses, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, read like this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you are worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called, in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Those introductory thoughts, may I suggest, set before all of us a rather thrilling motivation. I would call to your attention, in fact, though it's a bit after this, but in verses 12 and following, we are admonished as Christians to be built up in the great unity of the faith. Well, this unity is what's going to be our subject I entitle this lesson, Discussion of One. Wouldn't you agree the number one is a very special number? It is absolute uniqueness. If there is but one of something, that means that entity, whatever it is, is absolutely unique. There's no replica. There's no substitute. There's nothing else like it if there's only one of them. And yet, in their discussion of this particular set of passages... We have noticed seven times the number one has been asserted. And before we launch into a discussion of each of them, could we at least reflect on verses 1, 2, and 3? What is the foundation that moves us in this direction? First of all, it says, "...it is the unity of the Spirit." When you and I today even give thought to unity in the church or unity in the religious world, may we never forget that it's not not merely a unity that we would desire or a unity that we might find preferable. But according to verse number 3, it is the unity of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that wants this unity. It's the Spirit that in fact asserts it, demands it, and describes it. It is for that reason, these opening thoughts, I would submit to you. The Christian life is such a special life, an honored life, a revered life. Philippians 3.14 will say it like this, "...I press to the calling of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." That mark of the prize of the high calling, reminding us that it is a high way to live. It would do us well, all of us, to keep in mind that we live in a world where sometimes Christianity is housed and phrased and presented as a rather insulting way to live, as a way that misses out on the major benefits and blessings of life, but it's just the opposite. The Christian life is by far the best life there is. And it's the only life with a promise of one hereafter. Is any wonder then in verses 2 and 3, it says, "...with all lowliness and meekness." And I've highlighted some of these things on that slide. "...with long suffering, forbearing one another in love." It would easily be possible to preach a full lesson on each one of those particular terms. But in order to bring us to our discussion of one, I mention them in passing because the Spirit asserts them. How are you and I doing these days?" How are you and I doing in our individual lives at lifting high the banner of the unity of the Spirit? That unity is now going to be presented in the following very directive ways. And so let's close that slide like this. Isn't it true we are encouraged in Psalm 133 verse 1 about the unity of brethren? You know, we love it as Christians that we're able to appreciate, admire, honor. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We weep with those that weep, Romans 12, 15. And in so doing, we strive to be united just as the Lord would wish us to be. To ask that is to put it like this. How does He wish it to be? It starts like this, verse 4. Holy Spirit, could you tell us what kind of unity you have in mind? He says, there is one body. And if you're reading in the King James translation, you'll notice the words there is are in italics. That is to say, the translator supplied them. It literally starts in verse 4, one body. There is one. All of the considerations of men... All of the logical reasonings of men will never change the proclamation of the Word of God. It says, one body. And this slide is my attempt to invite us to reflect on the significance of it. In this very same book, turn back three chapters, to say that there's one body is to say this. Verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1 define for us what this body is that's under discussion. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And thus, when Paul made the statement under the direction of the Spirit that there is one body, he was asserting, he was testifying, he was proclaiming that there is one church. And so on this slide, isn't it remarkable then to appreciate the harmony of that consideration with so many other verses? Matthew sixteen eighteen. The Son of God himself said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't it significant that the word church is singular one? Both in English and in Greek. But maybe it's fair to say that here, as Paul highlighted that truth, one body. Of course, the religious world is rather fragmented today. All kinds of religious institutions, all kinds of religious organizations that wear differing names, that wear differing realities in terms of what is believed and what is practiced and what is taught. But that was never the intent of our Master it was never the will of Jesus. What was it He prayed in John chapter 17? On the very night before He was crucified, the Master Himself, pleading earnestly in prayer to the Father, said, Father, that they may be one, as Thou art in Me, and I in Thee. John 17, verses 20 and 21. One. The Lord prayed that all followers of Him for all time would be one. One. It certainly is not very reflected then in what we typically see today. As you journey forward on that slide, the unity of course that is highlighted here begins in this way, one church. The understanding that proceeds with that beautiful truth should be a motivating matter for you and I. We should love the one church the master's blood bought, Acts 2028. 20, and we should appreciate him as the singular head of that one body, Colossians 1:18. And thus we love the church. We love this one body, because isn't it true that one body is the one, of course, in Ephesians 5:23, the one that's saved. What else did the Spirit have to say? As you and I close that slide, one body. Let's transition to the next one. It says, One Spirit. And so this slide now brings us to appreciate this truth. The Spirit, of course, is so often mentioned in the Word of God, as surely as there is God the Father, there is God the Son, but there's also God the Spirit. And this Spirit, of course, is one of the members of that triune, that Godhead, but early on in the Holy Word of God. Do we not find these words, let us make man in our image, us, is plural. Now, that was before the creation of man. But isn't it interesting that even in that reference, we find an initial understanding of the nature of the Godhead. And it's mentioned in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. At this point, developing that a little bit further, The Spirit, of course, is the one that you and I thank and owe so much for revealing to us the mind of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 14 specify to us that no man can know the mind of God unless the Spirit reveals that mind. You and I would never know what God's will is, what His wishes are, what His demands are, unless He tells us, and the Spirit has done that but there is one Spirit. Now, Paul highlights that truth here, and it's a matter that still is of great significance to us. About the middle of that slide, might you and I appreciate that one great implication of that is if there's one Spirit, would it be expected that that one Spirit would have differing or divergent messages? Would that Spirit tell me one thing and tell somebody else something different? Well, obviously not. There is but one Spirit, and hence there's a unified whole to the Word of God. And that unified whole, as you and I are told in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, is the one that provided the authorship to this wonderful Holy Bible. That was the opening song we sang right near the beginning of the Bible study hour. Give me the Bible. Holy message shining. Because that Word of God testifies to exactly what's needed to please God. The oneness of the Spirit, of course, takes us back to the unity of the Spirit that's mentioned in verse 3. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, something else is mentioned. Paul went on to say, Even as you're called in one hope of your calling. Don't you find it thrilling to give some thought to this word hope? There are many things for which you and I might have some degree of expectation, some degree of hope. Maybe you hope that it won't rain tomorrow, those that are doing hay work, I suppose. Or maybe you have some hope that perhaps it will be pretty next Saturday. You have plans to do things with your family. Now that kind of hope is not what we're describing here. This word hope literally carries confident expectation in its reality. In other words, you and I as Christians, we live by virtue of a confident expectation. We are expecting to understand and experience the reality of this one hope. The New Testament tells us what it is in Colossians 1.5, the hope of heaven. That's what motivates us to do what we do, isn't it? We happily will sacrifice other things, to invest our life in the following of the Master because He said so, and because that's what He says will be required to get to heaven. How tragic would it be to arrive on the day of judgment only to hear Him say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Matthew 7, 23. No wonder that frightful word is what we do not want to hear. And so we live under the reality and the banner of one hope. May I ask each of us personally, what is your hope? Are you and I then living in the conviction of this hope? If so, it means that there are certain things we won't say tomorrow. We won't talk foul language or bad language because it will jeopardize our experiencing of this hope. There are places we won't go tomorrow because it will jeopardize our experiencing of this hope there are things we will try not to think because it will jeopardize our experiencing of this hope. The idea is easy, isn't it? It is for that reason. Let's close that slide like this. This one hope as it's referenced here, did you notice it's the hope of your calling? That word calling reminds us of 2 Thessalonians 2.14 that we're called to be the gospel And in as much as we're called that way, you'll notice that calling has the great promise of everlasting life for the faithful, for the obedient. Surely it is in that connection it takes us to the next verse. One Lord. Verse number 5 lists three rather rapid matters in succession. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Would you think with me for just a moment about one Lord? That word Lord is from kurios, that means our Master. The one to whom we strive to follow. The one who gives commands or orders and we dutifully seek to follow. There is one Lord. As you can see in that development, wasn't it Peter who so powerfully was able to say in Acts 4 verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And later in the book of Acts, Acts 10 verses 36 to 38, He, speaking of Christ, is Lord of all. May you and I always humbly and submissively bow before Him as we seek to do that which He teaches. One Lord. Some of the next implications of this are rather significant indeed. As you and I study the Revelation, for example, we notice so beautifully presented is the conqueror riding on the white horse. The one who is able to defeat the devil, Satan, hell, and everything that goes with it. Who is the rider? King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14. Echoed in Revelation 19, 16, He is none other than the one wearing the vestment, the Son of God. He is Lord of all. You and I live practically 20 centuries this side of His actual walking upon earth, but untold lives He has impacted and He still does today. You and I thus choose to invest ourselves. Do you recall the day you were baptized? as I speak to those that are members of the Lord's body? Do you remember that day when you made a public affirmation, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? We often call that the confession, and it is a good confession, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. But the nature of that confession reminds us we on that occasion and at that time made profession that we submit to Christ. We declared Him as the Lord and Master of our life today. Are you and I living according to that profession? If not, we need to make some changes. We need to repent. We need to do something different. We need to come back to our first love. But one Lord, let's close that discussion by what He next presents, one faith. I suppose among the fullness of the list, the two elements that in the mind of many would cause the greatest amount of controversy would be one faith on the one hand and one body on the other. We've already discussed one body. What about one faith? I know that all of us have been presented with the question, someone in a very innocent way asks, what faith are you? You and I probably try to respond to tactfully, we try to respond consistent with the Word of God, but the fact is, there is but one faith. There aren't two, there aren't half a dozen, and there certainly aren't the myriad number that are typically accepted around the world today. There are various times in statistical representations that you notice the number of faiths, and it quite frankly numbers into the hundreds at this point, as if there are lots of distinct and acceptable and perfectly favorable distinct faiths. But that doesn't change what the Bible here says. It says one faith. How many faiths are those pleasing to Jesus? One. How many faiths are those which then would be acceptable and satisfactory to Him? One. For that reason, I would ask you to notice on this slide, I've tried to state some of the thoughts like this. It is by decree of heaven that one faith is here taught and presented. And it harmonizes in so many other places. In Jude verse number 3, did you notice there what is said about the faith? As Jude made ready to write that little one-chapter book, he said, I've gained diligence that you might contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. He described it as the faith, definite article, not one among many, but one. Today, you and I then have the explicit right and decree by God to lift high the reality of one faith. There aren't many of them. And therefore, may you and I rest in the beauty and splendor of one faith. You'll notice some of these additional faults. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 pointed out to the church at Corinth, and does so to you and me today still, the beauty of this truth. Paul, writing to that congregation in Corinth, said to them, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What a wonderful unity. One faith, all of you should be speaking the same thing. There ought not be any divisions among you. You ought to be united in the same judgment. I know none of us would say that that would characterize the modern religious landscape. It's obvious it doesn't. Some groups teach one thing. Some teach something very different. In fact, they're quite often mutually exclusive. If this one's right, this one can't be. And if this one's right, this one can't be. And yet they all claim, we'll get you to heaven. Jesus is pleased with what we are doing. And yet it cannot be. Because the Bible asserts there's one faith. And there is a unity characterized by oneness in judgment, oneness in what is taught and practiced, and oneness in what is asserted. You and I love the unity of the Bible, and what strength is in that unity. One Lord? Let's close that thought by noticing this last statement about faith. I guess some of the most well-known evangelistic preachers are rather fond of saying things like, reaching some point in their lesson and then saying, Accept Jesus into your heart, choose the faith of your choice, and be sincere and faithful in it. May I ask what verse that's found in? May I ask where in the Bible is it, does it teach this? Your answer is correct. It isn't taught anywhere. This phrase, choose the faith of your choice, flies in the face of a passage like this one. There is one faith. We aren't given a choice. One faith takes us to the next observation. Because you'll notice number seven is one baptism. The last of the statements in verse five. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It would easily be possible to devote a fair amount of discussion to the nature of the various baptisms discussed in the Word of God. But you and I can at least appreciate, and I've listed there for you, some of the references to some of the other ones. I suppose quickly to our mind would come that statement in Matthew chapter 3, where John said, I baptize you in water, but there's coming one after me who shall baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire. What's that? John made reference to a baptism in the Holy Spirit? a baptism in in fire. But yet here you'll notice Paul was able to say there's one baptism. Perhaps to get to the point of consideration, as I've asked you on that slide, those other baptisms, like baptism of the Holy Spirit, that wasn't for all humanity. It was for the apostles. And we see it exhibited and experienced by them in Acts chapter 2. You'll notice as far as the baptism of fire, that's reserved for the unfaithful on the day of judgment. But for now, how many baptisms are there that move toward and make possible salvation? There is but one. It's this baptism in water for the remission of sins. The baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. The very thing told to Saul by Ananias in Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It did a beautiful thing to imagine and to reflect upon what you and I have experienced? Again, if you're a member of the Lord's body. There was a time you were immersed. It wasn't for the cleansing of your physical body. 1 Peter 3.21 It was for the forgiveness of your sins. And you came out of that watery grave just like the Ethiopian nobleman did in Acts 8. And you came out rejoicing because your sins had been wiped away. You'd been redeemed. To say that there's one baptism is to take us back to that slide. It is that one baptism that puts us into Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and following. It's that one baptism that is the admission into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's that one baptism that is the one then from which we can rise as a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. To say all of that is to cast such a strong and blessed spotlight upon baptism. And yet here Paul also referenced it as one. By this point, you'll notice that there is but one left. And as we transition to number eight, the closing one in the list, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let me interject a thought, if I might. There are many elements in this list for which the human family would have no problem I suspect anybody that even claims any association to Christianity would say, well, sure there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Surely there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. By all means, there's just one God the Father. But did you notice, if we can so easily understand the word one in connection to those realities, and it's the same word that's used in connection to the church and the same word that's used in connection to the faith, you see, there's only one of them as well. One does mean one, doesn't it? And yet, as this last one is mentioned, it's almost as if one builds to appreciate that all of these others we've described are the will of this one God in heaven, the Father. And there is one God and Father of all. There are not many God the Fathers. There's just One. And it is said here that He is above all. He is deserving of our utmost fear and respect. He's deserving of our utmost and most serious consideration. But it goes on to say, through all. Everything that there ever has been, is now, or ever will be, is by understanding of the reality of either what He expressly makes possible, or He allows it to occur. He is through all and in you all. That last part, of course, was directed to that church at Ephesus. What if we give thought to the Pippin Church of Christ? In you all! Is God the Father such that His will is manifested by everything that you and I do and say? Do we so conduct ourselves that the will of the Father is the paramount matter in our life? This list closes, as you can see on that slide. And how often Jesus Himself directed us to the will of the Father. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10 you notice Jesus prayed to the Father and He encouraged us to be mindful to do the same. But didn't He say in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we come near the close of this lesson this morning, I'd like to do it using this conclusion slide. In brevity, we have looked at least for a few moments, and so much more might have been said, but at least for a few moments to reflect on a discussion of one, the unity of the Spirit. And that unity is characterized by these things, and there can be no discussion, no question about them. One church, one hope, one Spirit, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. That's it. Man will never be able to change it, to add anything to any one of them, because one cannot be altered. It's unique and absolute. This morning, as we've noted several times in this lesson... There are great demands in all of this unity for you and me. Am I living my life following the one Lord in harmony with one faith, upstanding in one church? Is my life an open testimony to the one baptism and furthermore to the one God who made it all possible? And am I in complete servitude to one Lord If I am, if you are, then may you and I continue to live that way because the unity of the Spirit is expressed in us. But if we aren't, it isn't God's fault. And it isn't the Lord's fault and it isn't the Spirit's fault. Because they've presented what needs to be asserted. And it's my fault, my failure, having given my attention to something to someone else. Today, if you are a wayward child of God, one who at one time knew this unity but have since begun to live in a way that the unity is really not a practical reality for you. Your life is not as it ought to be, and you know it, and perhaps others do too. Why don't you do what you know you need to do today? Jesus is beckoning. He's pleading with you. And He wants you faithfully at His side because He wants to give to you a home in heaven because that's the one hope. But He knows, and you know right now, that that hope is not yours. And if you were to pass from this life, or if He were to return in the next little while, you wouldn't be ready. Don't you want to make it right? If you will make repentance in terms of those errors, those sins, confess them, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If, on the other hand, there's someone here who's never become a Christian at all, You have never known anything about the reality of the experiencing of this one hope because you haven't made ready for it. You could take care of that in a matter of minutes. The baptismal waters are prepared. In a few minutes, we could make observation of your belief. We could make note of your repentance. We could hear you make a great confession. And we would be happy to immerse you in baptism for the remission of sins. And you could rise from that watery grave, leaving this building as clean and pure as possible. If we could help you in that way today, don't delay any longer. Why not come now while together we stand and sing?